0: This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network.
1: Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the Only Podcast, which honours the often underappreciated by the masses work of character I'm Stephen Porzio. My name's Andrew Carroll. And today we are talking about social services herself, Tilda Swinton. um, In our previous episode, we already discussed her career up to her Oscar win for 2007's Michael Clayton. Now we're going to explore her career after that. So
2: uh, do you have a rundown for that part of her career? I do indeed. After a 2007 Best Supporting Actress Oscar win for Michael Clayton, Tilda Swinton continued as she always had, pursuing interesting, thought-provoking work in small-to-mid-budget films, with the occasional step into the mainstream. Although we'll we'll say, over the last 15 years, she's been a lot more daring. Uh, her first post Oscar film was the or maybe just as daring as she was who can say we'll get into it yes. her first post Oscar film was the Coen Brothers 2008 satire thriller Burn After Reading this collaboration would set Swinton on a path to seeking out directors and writers that could write and direct to her strengths as she could act to theirs these were often supporting roles but no less interesting as she was often pursued as she has often pursued dual or even triple roles throughout the last 15 years along with her two collaborations with the Coen Brothers she has worked with Luca Guadagnino twice Jim Jarmusch twice Bong Joon-ho twice, Wes Anderson three times, and Joanna Hogg three times. These films include Only Lovers Left Alive, Moonrise Kingdom, Snowpiercer, The Grand Budapest Hotel, A Bigger Splash, Hail Caesar, Okja, Sus- Suspiria, Isle of Dogs, The Dead Don't Die, The Souvenir, The French Dispatch, The Souvenir Part 2, and The Lost Daughter, with more to come. Eternal Daughter. Is it? Lost Daughter is the Maggie Gyllenhaal movie. Oh, bollocks. It's great. Leave it in. <laughs> Along with these roles, she led the films We Need to Talk About Kevin, Memoria, and 3,000 Years of Longing. She played the ancient one in Doctor Strange and in, and in Avengers Endgame. More mainstream roles included Trainwreck and The Personal History of David Copperfield. Future roles will include Wes Anderson's Asteroid City and David Fincher's The Killer, starring Michael Fassbender.
1: Yeah, excellent. Um, yeah, As we said in a previous episode, pretty much from the start of her career, Swinton was impressing critics with her versatility and her risk-taking in terms of the role she played in more art house fare like Edward II and her other collaborations with Derek Jarman um, along with her leading part in Sally Potter's Orlando and I think immediately following that you see Swinton taking on more leading roles in art house and smaller films while also being cast in more supporting roles in mainstream movies and eventually she starts to be recognized by a greater number of people for her work um, partly on account of her turns in blockbusters like you know, the Narnia films and Constantine but also the the Oscar win for Michael Clayton.
2: Wes Anderson, big fan of Narnia. <laughs>
1: exactly, yeah, he loves it. Um, he's doing a Rodale movie. Now, I suppose you're right, yeah, enough, yeah, so yeah. It, yeah. It's close enough. Um, but uh, yeah, just looking at her work post-2007, I really think her Oscar win cemented her in people's minds as one of the modern acting greats and led to more brilliant directors seeking out her talents and if you look at the list of filmmakers as you pointed out she's worked with particularly since 2011 like it's astonishing mm. you know and um, what I love about her is I that while the projects may have gotten a lot bigger in this later period of recovering I don't think she's ever sacrificed any of her ambition or risk taking mm. that made her stand out in those early movies because like I think she's bringing these unique off-kilter vibes to projects like Snowpiercer or Suspiria or 3000 Years of Longing, The French Dispatch and Hell, even Doctor Strange. Yeah, you know kind I mean? of, yeah. Because, like, obviously, ah, bald, bald, bald. <laughs> obviously, I understand that the uh, the casting of Swinton in the part of the Ancient One was criticized a lot as being like, an example of whitewashing because mm. the character's a temp- oh, yeah, man yeah. in the comic books. But, uh, and that, yeah, that's fair and valid criticism, but, even with all the controversy they still brought swinton back for avengers endgame yeah
2: it's true which because
1: her performance in a vacuum where she she's taking this like mystical mentor figure who could be really like that mystery man joke of like if you want to go left you have to go right mm. kind of thing <sighs> and makes her feel truly lived in and practical when she's doing all the practical hand gesture stuff yeah. and, um like swinton's so fun and striking to watch in those scenes and um i had what i will say i had one or two people say to me like it's it's cool that you're covering swinton but like is she really a character actor and uh to that i say like i think the term character actor refers to an actor who frequently plays like a distinctive and important supporting role in movies and i think while swinton will sometimes have lead roles um you know there's we need to talk about kevin only lovers Left Alive, a bigger splash 2000 years of longing more often she's playing supporting characters sometimes multiple ones in a movie in the case of like a gulchia and Suspiria. Um, and for her I, I think it always feels like more about the collaborators in the project than the size of the part yeah like um I think she's in that Willem Dafoe space where if, hypothetically Guillermo de Taro is like I'm gonna do another gothic horror romance movie and Swinton's the lead we'd all be like yeah makes sense yeah uh, but if she if he instead said like I'm doing a gothic horror movie Swinton has the 8th biggest role it would just make as much sense yeah, you know yeah. um, which is interesting you know it's a it's a cool place to be
2: yeah very not much many so.
1: people get to have that much creative freedom that's true and yeah, I, I think yeah. there's an argument to be that she's kind of holding up Arthouse Cinema on her shoulders <laughs> very much so yeah um, any other uh, points or facts about Swinton before we get into it okay good Andrew's nodding his head yeah. like that good podcasting <laughs> Um why well, kick off with Julia yes go for it yeah yes yeah. so Tilda Swinton
2: leaves wake me when you're done <laughs> Julia's a bang you'd love Julia
1: I'm sure I would yeah um, Tilda Swinton leads the cast as Julia um, a woman living in California who's an alcoholic um, who loses her job early in the movie on account of this um, at an AA meeting she meets a neighbor of hers named Elena played by Kate Del Castillo who has a plan to kidnap her son named Tom um, from the boy's grandfather who is this uh, wealthy businessman elena recruits julia to help her carry this out saying that she has money stored away and that she can reward julia however on the eve of the kidnapping julia learns elena was lying about being wealthy and decide and julia as such decides to grab tom by herself and demand a ransom from the boy's grandfather and events soon spiral out of control
2: as they as they would yeah
1: yes
0: had some um um family problems you've got family problems i've got family problems too but you know what? I still come to work every day on time. What are we talking about here? I got drunk once. But since I've been here, I have been really good. I have been on time. All my appointments, all my meetings, everything. Ask Mitch. Um, yeah. I need your help. I'll pay you to kidnap your kid. This is where, where they're gonna park their car. There's nowhere to run, see? And it's time my luck changed, and it's time something went right for me for change. And then, here's the kicker. We kidnap a kid from her.
2: <laughs> we oh kidnap a kid
0: from her! And, and and there's real money there. Nick, I tell you, see seen the pictures, and they're loaded. Help!
1: Um, this movie is so good it's directed by Eric Zonka who is a French filmmaker I'm not familiar with at all outside of this Um, he's said to have been really inspired when making Julia by um, the great 1980 movie Gloria um, which starred one of the acting goats Gina Rowlands and Mm -hmm. is directed by John Cassavetes by far his most mainstream movie and you can see that in that both Julia and Gloria center on these larger than life middle aged women that aren't great with kids on the run with a little boy and there are also character dramas on top of being crime thrillers that said Gina Rowlands' character was way better with kids (laughs) in um, Gloria than Swinton's character is in Julia and I think while there are definitely echoes of Rowlands' sort of naturalistic energy in Swinton's performance this is more like Swinton's Uncle Gems right and okay. I say that full knowing full well that um, Swinton has a voice cameo in Uncut Gems <laughs> um, like the Howard Ratner character played so brilliantly by Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems Judy is this just reckless selfish self-destructive person who just constantly makes poor decisions and is unrepentant about it and these poor decisions wind up with her and the kid Tom who's played by Aidan Gould who is the brother of the actor who plays Luke Dunphy in Modern Family um, which is interesting Um, it ends up with them fleeing from police and crashing her car through the border separating the US and Mexico ending up in Tijuana where things just go from bad to worse leading to this final 45 minute stretch of the movie that is incredibly tense and um, the movie's 140 minutes long but honestly kind of earns it it feels Mm. like an epic yeah um and I think in lesser hands, like the movie could be frustrating because you're just watching its title character make bad choice after bad choice. It's somehow not. And I think it's because of the quality of the acting and directing. Like the filmmaking is so immersive. There, There's a lot of long takes and also very little score. Like most of the music in the movie is uh, diegetic. And they're both things you, you tend to see more in uh, non-Hollywood movies. And apparently this was more of a hit with the European press who called it, a, a, some of them called it a French film with English dialogue. Yeah. Also like, like when um you know vim vendors makes paris texas or nicholas winning raffin makes drive or luca guadagnino who we'll talk more about in a bit makes bones and all you know recently um judy has that thing that i think can happen when non-american directors shoot movies in the u.s where they're zero winning in on interesting details about american life and finding incredible settings that i think american directors can sometimes take for granted um, and as such, the movie just feels a lot more textured mm. and interesting visually. And but the movie wouldn't work without the uh, powerhouse performance at the centre of it uh, that Tilda gives. In the same way as Rollins and Gloria and other Casavaye's movies, it doesn't feel like you're watching a performance. It's it's more like you're witnessing a documentary <laughs> in terms of how lived in it feels. And like as the movie's opening credits roll, you're given um, a glimpse of the Julia character on a night out in a bar where everyone's drinking too much and getting messy and stumbling around. It seems like some sort of like work event. And, um, you yeah, know, everyone's kind of being handsy and starting to act inappropriate. And you can tell that Judy is just the life of the party. Like, she's dancing, she's fast talking in that slur drunk kind of way, she's flirting with people, she's very glamorous, but also without words these little moments in the scene where the character is alone in the bar and you can tell is getting introspective in that way i think you sometimes can when you're a few drinks in Um, she just conveys to audiences that like this character is drinking to escape and is um into oblivion yeah and sure enough the scene cuts the next morning after she's had a one-night stand with a married man in his car and we see that her day life isn't glamorous and you come to realize that this is sort of a pattern of behavior for julia you know drinking too much and then waking up the next day in random places with a foggy recollection of the night before and, like, she treats people very badly in the movie. Uh, before she gets attached to Tom, the kid she kidnapped, and they, you know, form more of a bond, like, she ties him up, and, like, <laughs> puts him in the boot of her car, and she drugs him with sleeping pills. Like, and even before the kidnapping, she, like, completely screws over Tom's mother, Elena. She also takes advantage of her friend Mitch, who's by, by Saul Rubinick, um, who's this older AA member who is further along in his recovery and looks out for Julia. And and while I, but like while I would never say she's likable, she's very compelling in that, like swinton makes her feel like a fully lived in person like the way she delivers dialogue like i can't overstate like how little the words sound like a script as opposed to a conversation you might hear on the street like the way you can feel the character struggling to formulate the right words and stuttering and saying like and um umming and eyeing you know but she she imbues the character with like such a pain and vulnerability you know because she has this substance abuse problem and seems to have had a hard life which makes her hard not to sympathize a bit with in moments and also she gives the character this sort of spunky energy that seems born out of hardship that again is hard not to rally behind even a little bit you know because like there's this amazing scene in the movie where she visits an old friend to try and recruit him into her kidnapping scheme who turns her down and like she talks about why she's doing it and she says like it's time my look changed and it's time something went right for me for a change and she later adds like you know my life I'm sick of it I work like a dog and where's the money it goes through my fingers I'm tired what do I do I mean I smile and I eat shit from guys and what do I have I don't have anybody I get drunk and I'm getting old and (laughs) it's that's the most we ever learn about Julia's life pre the events of the movie and is like the closest explanation for why she commits to this crazy plan aside from just the money aspect and yet i think because of switten's delivery of the scene and that mix of sadness but determination like you get it even if as you're thinking like don't do it yeah yeah um so i really loved it. it's not perfect in that like certain plot threads kind of fall by the wayside and it maybe strains credibility and parts but as this sort of scrappy constantly mutating visceral character drama slash crime thriller like it's pretty effective you Mm. know and people should check it out and it's um, streaming on movie as part of their Tilda Swinton season I mentioned in the previous episode.
2: When I first um, heard you mention this, I had no idea what the plot was. I think you mentioned it to me like after we would recorded part one and I thought it was like that movie, I, I'd mixed it up with that movie Julia Julia, and Julie. Yeah, the, one the one Julie with, Childs. The yeah, chef. Yeah. yeah, Meryl Streep and Amy Adams. I was like, she's in that? But no, it's a different movie. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about Moonrise? Yeah, sure. Sam Schakowsky played by Jared Gilman. Filmed to his own, Jared Gilman. So
1: funny, <laughs> such a great follow.
2: Yeah, and Susie Bishop, Cara Hayward are teenagers on the island of New Penzance, following a summer of exchanging letters. of the orphaned khaki scout and self serious but fantasy obsessed teenagers run away together, hunted by the scout troop leader led, sc- hunted by the scout troop led by Scoutmaster Randy Ward played by Edward Norton the island's only police officer Duffy Sharp played by Bruce Willis in possibly his last be- last really good role he's really good now, Yeah. yeah. Uh, Susie's parents Bill Murray and Francis McDormand, and Social Services played by Tilda Swinton the young lovers flee with the help of Sam's fellow scouts
0: you're Captain Sharp that's correct I'm Social Services I remanded the boy into your personal custody you're responsible for his safety I'm told that he's just been struck by lightning
2: it's the first I've heard of it it's true.
0: Scoutmaster Ward, I presume? Yes, ma'am. Your reputation precedes you. You two are the most appallingly incompetent custodial guardian social services has ever had the misfortune to encounter in a 27-year career. What do you have to say for yourselves? You can't do this.
2: They'll eat him alive in there. Where? What's that place again? Juvenile refuge. Juvenile refuge. Sounds like jail.
0: Just find the boy. And... Deliver him to social services. Nothing else is in your power.
2: It opens, as all films should, with uh, the Bob Balakam, which is Bob (laughs) Balaban speaking to a camera. Um, And it's a Wes Anderson film with that kind of wonderful colour palette that the moment you see it, you're like reminded of very late summer or um, very early autumn and uh, it's kind of a, of a piece of with the Americana of his early work but you can see it moving toward the like European melanch- melancholy and like the candied pastels that would define the later more popular and successful phase of his career that he's still in I'd say and um, you know it's a pretty popular my mom loves this movie um it's the one that's a, a little bit even if you're not that into the wes
1: Anderson style mm. it's a, it's just a good coming of age movie
2: yeah exactly like tail it's tail as old as time you know two old souls and young bodies who prove that those older than them still have a lot of growing up to do and with that said like um it drew a lot i think it drew some controversy you know just for the exploration of teenage sexuality which you know Anything will in this day and age if you even hint at you know teenage sexuality or coming of age or whatever. And like it's not like Euphoria, like yeah, no, I know. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. I just think it's like uh, I think it's that of a piece of like being willfully ignorant in saying that this or any Wes Anderson film is kind of all whimsical style and no substance. In that you know there are there is like uh, old coming of age tales or Bildungsroman. Um, have to reckon with like aging, moral rot, and death, and you know that's that moral like saying goodbye to like innocence and quote unquote purity is like part of growing up essentially, and that's what makes this film good.
1: I agree. Yeah, And him, I think,
2: and, uh, um, I think the, the the dialogue is as always is really snappy, and I think his. Anderson's dialogue always really suits child actors, especially well, who haven't maybe, who aren't maybe as trained or experienced as um, their older co-stars might be. Their adult co-stars might be like. Um, it comes across as very mechanical when um, Sam says to Susie, "Like I always," uh, or Susie says to Sam, "Even's like she's like I always wished I was an orphan." Most of my favorite characters were. And he's like, I love you, but you don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> and then it, like the camera cuts to her, and she's like. Got a slight smile on her face, and his got these big wide eyes. she's like, "I love you too." It's like oh, yeah. you know, it's a, you didn't get the point here, but it's um, she got the point. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. There's two. There's, he, he's trying to say two things, but she's focused on the more positive one, which is always nice. Um, and yeah, just on um, <laughs> yeah on Tilda Swinton, who's was sort of born to appear in Wes Anderson films because. As with oil paintings, she often looks like she just stepped out of one, just on the red carpet or wherever. And it's kind of rare to find an actress that looked great in every kind of fashion ever conceived of. And um, as I said, she plays social services, a woman whose life is so intertwined with a job that her very name is social services. And like she's a pers- basically a personification of a service and institutions that most see as necessary evils. And it is, like, a minor role, but certainly one of the more pivotal across the four Anderson films she's in. Because I would say, I think her her character's death in The Grand put of Hotel is kind of like the, the, like, spark. Like, it sets the plot in motion. Um, but, you know, why bother covering something that she only has, like, 10 to 12 lines in? Whereas in this, she's like, is someone able to provide care and nourishment for the boy? And Duffy Sharp, Bruce Willis' character, goes, uh-huh. And she's like, is that a yes? <laughs> <laughs> um, and she's like maybe the only villain not like from a place of malice or evil but like from an institutional side in a film like that's kind of that's full of broken or damaged but still really sympathetic people except for Redford who's played by Lucas Hedges and is a real shit I completely forgot he's in it yeah, yeah, yeah. little prick <laughs> Anyway, that's all I've got to say. That's all I've got on Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah, I was a bit worried after. If it. you're listening, Lucas Hedges.
1: I was a bit worried after recommend, saying last week, like, I think that's the one that she's the largest role mm. in. I was worried you'd watch it and be like, she's in one scene. So I'm glad that. She's in three. Three. <laughs> that's great. That's good. I'll take that. Maybe four. Yeah. Um, three
2: sequences, four scenes.
1: Excellent. Beautiful. Mm. We'd love to see it.
2: That's <laughs> that,
1: that nice, I know the face character yeah. after space. Yeah. Um, do you want top a Snowpiercer?
2: Of course, yeah. Yep. Yeah. In 2014, an attempt to stop global warming instead brought about a new ice age. The only human survivors circle the world endlessly on board an enormous train called the Snowpiercer. 17 years later, a revolution led by Curtis Everett played by Chris Evans captures second-in-command Minister Mason played by Tilda Swinton and heads for the front of the train to confront Wilford played by Ed Harris, the mastermind and driver of Snowpiercer.
0: Passengers! This is not you. This is... Is disorder this is size 10 chaos this see this this is death in this locomotive we call home there is one thing that between our warm hearts and the bitter cold clothing shields no order order is the barrier that holds back the frozen death we must all of us on this train of life remain in our allotted station. We must each of us occupy our preordained particular position. Would you wear a shoe on your head? Of course you wouldn't wear a shoe on your head. A shoe doesn't belong on your head. A shoe belongs on your foot. A hat belongs on your head. I am a hat. You are a shoe. I belong on the head. You belong on the foot. Yes, so it is.
1: I think you talked about this when we covered Song Kang, Song Kang Ho mm. um, really early into our show's run, and I'd Too seem- early, I would say. <laughs> yes. I had I had seen the movie before that but didn't rewatch it for that episode and just revisiting it last week it just criticized for me that like this should be held in as high esteem as like The Matrix, mm. Inception and Mad Max Fury Road and because I like it's got everything you want in a blockbuster. Like it's yeah. credible premise, exciting Captain America. <laughs> Captain America, absolutely.
2: Except, his best role by far. Right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. One of two sci fi films where uh, he ends the film injured by machinery. Sunshine. Yeah. Yes. Um
1: exciting inventive action set pieces um atmospheric vibrant expensive looking sets mm. um fascinating characters you either root for or you want to know more about or both yeah. you know or hate yeah hate, but like i would love to know more about wilford oh absolutely what, what's, yeah 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 what's apparently going he's on? bisexual that's from the comic book yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know it's, it's well according to Bong Joon-ho is,
2: is, yeah. he, he is as well but maybe that's from the comic, comic book too yeah. um, performances are all wonderful but it, it's got a brain in it's head too like, can it, imagine a bi sorry can you imagine a bisexual Ed, Ed Harris um yeah I can too why not <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah people contain layers <laughs> yeah, you know yeah, yeah. um I've been I was, I've was. i been reading just Ed Harris for me is cemented as like him in Westworld where he's just <laughs> really yeah, angry yeah, and he all yeah. the time um I think it's. Uh, I think this movie, though, has a brain in its head as well. Like it's very telling that its co-writer director Bong Joon Ho uh, went on to make you know Oscar winning movie, groundbreaking movie, Parasite, because like you see the genesis of Parasite in Snowpiercer, because they're both very angry movies that are obviously about class. Um, mm. Yeah, you know, it's Snowpiercer is about this massive train that's keeping humanity alive in this apocalyptic future, and I think that bottle setting becomes a way for Bong and his co-writer Kelly Masterson working from this kind of source material to tell a story about inequality in this just very direct and potent manner like distilling it to its essentials you know because you know you start the film and you have the poorest people living in squalor at the back of the train the tailies mm-hmm. as they're called and they're so poorly treated that they wind up staging this violent revolution to take control of the entire train and two that they have to advance to like carriage by carriage which is such a good like structure for a movie yeah yeah and but as they move through the carriages like the wealthier they find the other passengers on board to be, and the more lavish the environments are. Uh, but also, I th- without spoiling and th- because I think on account of its weird release here and in the US, uh, there might be people listening who haven't seen it. Yeah, I think so too. Um, as the tailies move up through the train, it becomes apparent that the class system is even more rigged than they thought to keep the people at the top of it.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, it's, it's rigged by them in order to prevent people at the bottom rising through the system, mm. and... Um, while well, that isn't a theme entirely unique to Snowpiercer, it's, I think it's rare to see a movie with blockbuster qualities and big stars address that in such a direct and angry way, um, which maybe was a factor in why it did get this sort of weird limited release where people didn't really know what to do with it. But I know there was obviously stuff with the Weinstein Company yeah, when it yeah. cuts and everything. Yeah. Um, but um, this movie is just really violent and it goes to some dark places <clears> and <throat> it doesn't sugarcoat things. And um, I think that's what's really bracing about it.
2: Yeah. Imagine if, He'd agreed to cut the bit with the fish out, though. Imagine how much worse the film it would have been. Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Um, the story, we, I think we talked about it in the f- song episode, but um, what, a, what a story! What a great guy, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. You know, is, but like, I, I was, I was watching that, and that w- I was the scene with the fish, hmm. and, and
2: it comes. The fish is throughout the scene. You couldn't yeah, cut it. Yeah, it yeah. wouldn't yeah. make sense. Because yeah, because Chris Evans slips on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, there, so much good stuff happens in that scene. In that scene. Like there's the bit where they dip their hatches into the fish's guts where chris evans slips on the fish and um then there's the bit where the fighting pauses and all the bad guards just go count down from 10 and go happy new year yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um also i think that scene's very important for the, the is the lead
1: character curtis right mm. curtis and edgar um the jamie bell character
2: jamie fucking bell
1: yeah their their bond is that there's like a moment in the in the middle of all the carnage where they kind of like catch each other yeah, and like, yeah. it's that's a huge devastating
2: yeah 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 this is one of these movies that has all of the like unique quirks of a Korean thriller you can find those like three in that scene alone um, it reminds me of the be- bit of towards the end of parasite where he's being followed by the policeman and he just slips and falls down downstairs <laughs> so the <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. and these unique quirks that are often unique to Korean thrillers that when established and given time to breathe, add to the world of a film regardless of kind of how outlandish the plot is. Uh for instance, I watched um recently a movie called The Witch Part One, the subversion, which is on Shudder. Just got out of it, yeah. amazing. Good. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like the first hour is like one of the best kind of setups origin stories I've seen for this kind of combination superhero horror action movie thing. The last hour is not disappointing, but it's uh you know, you can't it's hard to follow up a setup where uh, an escapee from like an experimental institute is discovered because she enters a local talent show through by singing uh cover, a pop cover of Danny Boy.
1: <laughs> really? That's yeah. what it's about. Yeah. Love that.
2: Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm no, dying to see it. Um, and your
2: man from um, Parasite is in it, the uh, son. Oh, teddy yeah, 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 yeah. yeah.
1: Cool.
2: Yeah. Um, Highly recommend to everyone. We Top a Swinton. Yeah. Oh yeah, I forgot she was in there. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, this is so disappointing. This is size ten chaos. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think like Constantine
1: Swinton is probably the real standout performance in Snowpiercer, even though I'd say there's not a bum note in the cast. Like, mm. I think every, even from like people who show up in on one scene, like Alison Pill, everyone's like, yeah, yeah. pretty
2: amazing. Yeah, um, she... Icelandic eggman, the eggman, the, oh, the the, so the guy good. who gives out eggs and also looks like an egg. Even the I completely forgot about all this stuff with
1: um I think his name is he's something the elder uh, Franco the elder yeah yeah the, the dude who um ends up becoming the sort of like the muscle against yeah, them yeah, in the second yeah. half so good yeah really really good um yes yeah uh, Sutton plays Minister Mason who appears to be second in command to Wilford um, who's this NA matter creator of the train as matched by by Ed Harris, um. Also, like Constantine, Swinton's character in Snowpiercer seems to be gender-fluid. Some characters call Mason he, some say she.
2: Oh, okay. Um, That's one something I didn't catch on, but I guess I was too caught up on the fish. Yeah, the fish is so good.
1: In the script for Snowpiercer, uh, Mason is described as a mild-mannered man in a suit. Uh, But Bong and Swinton had wanted to work together, and apparently Swinton read the script and thought there was no part for her to play but then a few weeks later, Bong suggested Swinton play Mason and she obviously, I think, took the character in a very different direction mm. um, instead of being this uh, mild-mannered bureaucrat. And apparently, um, Swinton's We Need to Talk About Kevin co John C. Riley was at one point uh, considered for this role. Ah. Um, Mason in Swinton's hands is this smug, condescending, callous uh, politician who has these um, grotty fake teeth as well as these... Uh, big gold glasses and a very severe looking wig mm. um it's such a distinct unique look and i think what really impressed me about forms on rewatch is how it's very archetypal and broad on one level but also hyper specific on another mm. and Susan's talked about how her take on the character was in her words a complete smash cut of all the monstrous maniacal political clowns and that she was inspired by like margaret thatcher colonel gaddafi Adolf hitler um sylvia Berlusconi. uh and you really feel the echoes of them in switten's portrayal of mason particularly in um you know Swin's big scene in the movie when mason arrives to punish the Ewan bremner character for throwing a shoe at one of uh <laughs> henchmen and mason punishes him by getting wolford's goons to stick his arm out a train window into the ice age outside in where it completely freezes over and as bremner's character is wriggling in pain mason is completely unaffected and gives the speech in which they basically say like you know i belong at the head of the train you tell these belong at the back i know your place um but between the kind of pompous charisma that switten projects as mason and her oddly hypnotic line delivery and hand gestures and also the dialogue which sees the character twist logic through this very protracted metaphor to suit their own agenda Mm. like this is not a shoe this is disorder size 10 chaos um (laughs) freeloaders like you yeah um i i think the character reminds you of politicians you see in the news today yeah but I think while Snowpiercer is inspired by real life issues and politicians in terms of the Mason character, it is at the end of the day itself a very heightened story. It's just dystopian sci-fi. And I think with her neck, which I think we talked about in the last episode of for knowing the correct tone to strike in a movie, hmm. Swinton adds enough other qualities to the Mason character that helps them separ- that helps separate the character from any one specific political figure, you know. So the whole time in this futuristic setting, you're not thinking that's Thatcher. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Gaddafi. And I think she does that through the very distinct yorkshire accent she deploys which she said is based on a figure of authority from her early life that stuck with her which i think is pretty ingenious you mm-hmm. know like kind of mixing the personal with the political like that yeah um but also there's the unpredictability of the character too because after being captured by the taillies mason once will one second be like grinning with happiness to crying in fear or worshiping Wilford and the sacred engine <laughs> um to offering to help kill him And I think that emotional unpredictability could be read as like a cynical political maneuver, you know, like Mason testing what face they should wear to get what they want or survive a situation. Or they, like most of the other people on the train, could just be losing their mind because they're locked in a steel box for 17 years. Yeah. Um,
2: Either way, I think it's a really canny performance choice. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think so too. It is kind of odd how I... It's like you can kind of start to see how scarcity and loss are kind of starting to extend up through the train as well. Um, Just through like... Mason's teeth like don't properly fit her mouth like her gla- and her glasses are and her clothes are outdated and it's like is it is it fashion or necessity that keeps them kind of stuck in the past? Yeah yeah,
1: yeah. the scene where Mason is um, takes out their teeth and shows it to Chris Evans mm. is so interesting yeah and it, I, is, is the character basically being like I'm one of you you yeah, know yeah. I don't know it's, it's a but it's a it's movies filled with these striking scenes like that that yeah. don't push the plot forward but just deepen the world
2: yeah yeah yeah. Great stuff to chew on. Maybe one of the last comic book movies to actually, that actually feels like it's been adapted from a comic book.
1: Mm. And um, I just think it's very satisfying also to watch the Mason character being taken down a peg or two, mm. you know, after being captured because Mason's sort of exposed then as being dispensable to Wilford. And the character is forced to try to endear themselves to the Tayleys and they're just having none of it, yeah. you know. And I, I think Swinton's very funny playing the awkwardness and discomfort of those scenes, like when the Tayleys make mason eat one of the bars made out of insects mm. <laughs> that the tailies have been eating for years and um
2: and while they all eat sushi yeah
1: yeah that's a, it's, a, it's yeah. such a good movie yeah while it was a big hit worldwide snowpiercer i feel it wasn't as widely seen in the english-speaking territories due to this reported battle between bong and the movie's u.s distributor you know the weinstein company which you know, apparently he wants to make a lot of cuts to the movie and Bong won that battle but at the expense of a wide release for the film uh, but thankfully it's available to stream on Prime Video now and we should also probably mention it went on to inspire a series <laughs> of yeah, the same name, which is, is on Netflix. Yeah, yeah, at least. Yeah. I think it's going to do a fourth. Yeah. It might be. I think the fourth's the last one. Yeah. Um, have you watched any of that? No, no. Uh, David Diggs and Jennifer Connelly? Yes. Yeah. And Sean Bean, I think, is wow. Wilford. That's cool. Um, I watched like three episodes of it. I was very excited for it in the lead up to its release. But um, I thought the show s- sort of strips a lot of the subversiveness and urgency out of the story from the few episodes I saw that it
2: yeah well that yeah that kind of stripping the urgency is kind of sounds like a necessity because it's TV like
1: it also like adds a murder subplot to, to make the show more of a procedural mm. which um like it kind of a procedure that you'd see on like the CFI channel you know Right. Yeah. and yeah. Uh, I thought that kind of cheapens the story a bit yeah. but um the movie's just on a like absolute other level you know yeah. and um Bong Shin Ho's new movie is a sci-fi movie yeah Mickey 17 the book is called Mickey 7 and the movie's called Mickey 17 okay. which is yeah. um odd I wonder does that mean there's going to be 17 uh, Robert Pattinson that'd be cool Um, if you want a carbon date when we're recording this episode a teaser for that movie dropped last night and people are freaking out that's not coming out to 2024 oh Jesus March 2024 and Mm -hmm. everyone's like you know doing the the basketballer and Uncle Jens yeah yeah why would
2: you show it to me if I can't have it (laughs) yeah yeah it's going to be a fallow year next year I think we'll I think there'll
1: be plenty of stuff there'll be something there'll be yeah, yeah we got the killer baby it's true, we got yeah. We've got two Wes Anderson's, apparently.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. As you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one.
0: Hi, I'm Neve Kavanagh.
1: And I'm Gerold Farrelly.
0: And we are the hosts of Agony Rants. We have been friends for a long time and on Agony Rants, we do what we've always done.
1: Talk about people behind their backs and make suggestions
2: on how they can improve their lives.
0: No, we cheer them up on Monday morning and help them with their problems.
2: By meddling in areas in which we are dangerously unqualified.
0: Why don't you join us each week for a new episode?
1: You'll find us wherever you do your listening with special bonus content
2: for subscribers on HeadStuffPodcasts.com. Agony runs out now on the Headstuff Podcast Network.
1: I know that face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I know that face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events, and lots more. We here at I Know The Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes, where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus VAT per month, when you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit com. And now, back to the show. Um, do we move on to Bigger Splash? Yeah. Yeah. Got a new, another Guadagnino next year, too. Yeah,
2: yeah. Challengers. Nice. Marianne Lane, played by Tilda Swinton, is a world-famous rock star convalescing after surgery in Italy with her boyfriend Paul, played by the Belgian bull himself, Matthias Schoenhartz. One day her ex, Harry Hawkes, played by Ray Fiennes, arrives with his daughter Penelope Pen Lanier, uh, played by Dakota Johnson, shattering the sunny peace of the isolated villa, though Marianne does her best to keep the peace. Tensions, sexual and otherwise, threaten to boil over at any point.
0: What's the point of Paul in your life now?
2: I was angry with you. Yeah, I know I was slutting around, but you took
0: everything so hard. And now look what I've done. I've <laughs> thrown you
2: this square. Yeah, he's square, Marianne. He's a square bear. He's all cuddly and built for hibernating with. And he's stuck.
0: I will always
2: How are you dealing with this? Hmm? What if it doesn't come back? No, it might not come back. Have you thought about that? It's your fucking life. Your voice is your fucking life. Had you seen this before? No, I hadn't. Did you spot the Luca Guadagnino cameo? No, he's Daniel. Yeah. He's in. He plays like uh, Matthias Schoenaerts' sound man when he's interviewing oh, Ray. Oh, very. Yeah, yeah he, he's very like. Subdued and like Half in shadow But you'd spot him If you did there. not spot that Yeah the,
1: that's a yeah. great Yeah I remember that scene Yeah I really um, enjoyed
2: it Yeah me yeah. too Um
1: Yeah, yeah first watch for me too Um I don't know why I waited So long to watch this Because I'm a big fan Of God I Need You
2: Yeah me too Um I thought it would be More of a comedy Just, just by Because I hadn't But I hadn't seen anything From it I thought I like Just judging by the poster It was like I, I agree yeah. I I was um, it is funny. Don't get me it is. Wrong. Oh yeah, absolutely. But um, I think it's a it's a much more
1: edgier, darker movie than Call Me by Your Name. Yeah, maybe because so. the characters are older and have a lot more history, whereas that movie is a bit of a coming of age movie. But, yeah, um, like it, it shares stuff with it in that like there's it's sunny. yeah beautiful <laughs> Italian locales and being a story that can unfolds often not through dialogue but through glances and subtle gestures between people, it's awesome dance sequences. Mm um which is just it feels like a real guadagnino touch i just watched bones in awe and even that one has a mini one a very mournful dancing right <laughs> but yeah. um um but I, w- I was a little surprised and go away at how different um a bigger splash feels to call me by name just because like it's, it's this one's like darker and messier you have these four characters like this the rock star marianne her current boyfriend paul who's a director um marianne's ex-boyfriend harry a record producer and then who also used to be close friends with paul yeah and then you have um, Harry's estranged, very glamorous daughter, uh, Penn. And there are four people who should just never be in an Italian villa together for very an extended so. period yeah. of time, yeah. you know? Um, but because of that messy history, they wind up stuck together and it becomes this hotbed of desire and jealousy that is very alluring and fun and oftentimes funny, but also mm. uh, kind of twisted too. Yeah. And uh, But more importantly,
2: though, compelling. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and what did you get to the Tilda performance? I liked it, yeah. Um, it's... I mean like I said didn't expect it. She's mostly silent for the whole thing. Um she speaks in like a either a, she's recovering her character Marianne is recovering from throat surgery and so she can only uh, whisper and croak at people. Which is unfortunate as this is the point in her life where she needs her voice for personal rather than for professional reasons. Yes. Um and so it's unfortunate that all she can do is kind of watch the one strong friendship between her ex and her current boyfriend fizzle and spark. Uh, kind of like a lit taper until eventually it explodes, and of course Pen is there waiting with the match to light the fuse. Mm, yeah. yeah. Think, just judging from the brief shots of her on stage or putting her makeup on, I think Tilda Swinton might be the only person capable of fully playing t- uh, David Bowie and all his kind of madcap glory. That seems to be the the thing that like the the casting
1: that people have been trying to like wish into existence. the yeah, Most yeah. in the last couple of years.
2: Um, I think the the film really belongs to kind of find, finds and shown arts yes I yeah um, so it's kind of hard to see Marianne pass these two like I said Belgian and British bulls butting constantly butting heads uh, Marianne kind of comes into her own at the end um, as she kind of becomes the film's I guess immoral centre in that she allows someone else to take the blame for a tragic testosterone fueled mistake yes um
1: did you I had no idea that was going to be in the movie that it kind of turns into a Patricia Highsmith uh, like type story
2: for the yeah, last no, act yeah no I had no no idea I had no idea it was going that way um, I, I will say that <clears throat> if you had the um, incident where it turns into that Patricia Highsmith thriller earlier in the movie it wouldn't be as effective yeah but I still wish it was kind of earlier in the movie okay. <laughs> I wish it was kind of more of a thriller i wish like the first first hour like fun like not fun comedy boiling into something else and then at that hour mark it kind of flips the lid on you
1: it's it is an odd place to put it i'm not sure if i totally agree because mm, yeah, by yeah. proxy i'm
2: not sure i totally agree with i like the either. movie
1: before that yeah, point, yeah as well maybe even a little bit better i don't know but i i mm. do i just love that kind of thriller you know, yeah beautiful people in a beautiful place and like
2: Trying to like contain like a horrible situation. Yeah, uh, it's the kind of thing where I want to see both movies. You know, yeah, I want yeah. to see the resolution of this comedy drama, and I also want to see the thriller that comes out of it. Yeah,
1: yeah, um, yeah. I think the uh, the the Swinton performance and the fact that she can't communicate properly um, I, is fascinating from both the kind of story and performance perspective. Because I think this is a movie about people who don't know how to communicate with one another. You know, like Marianne's literal communication is limited but also the whole backstory of the movie you know is that harry and marianne broke it off years ago and harry for some reason maybe thinking he wanted to get marianne off his back set her up with his best friend paul or close friend paul and uh, may and years later he's realized job style that um he's made a huge mistake <laughs> and so like harry hijacks what's essentially like marianne and paul's romantic getaway in an effort to win marianne back and he brings his daughter along i, th- I think just sh- try to show that he's changed and also you know, Harry's trying to make himself appear really outgoing in the life of the party in contrast to Paul who is trying to live a more quiet peaceful life we learn as the movie goes on that Paul's in recovery from alcohol addiction, addiction and yeah. a suicide attempt and it's just it's so cringy and obvious what Harry is doing but he seems to have no self-awareness and mm. of how he comes across and basically the minute he arrived in Italy Mary and Paul should be like no boundaries go away yeah yeah uh, but they they can't out of their shared history and deep down, Marianne still does have a lot of affection for Harry, despite also loving Paul. And Mm. I think to swin's credit in the movie, despite being not able to deliver a lot of dialogue, you always know what's going on in the character's head. Mm. And sometimes it's very complicated warring emotions, like simultaneously being annoyed and rolling her eyes at Harry's behavior,
2: but also finding him exciting and charming. Yeah, and Paul is kind of similar. Because he is, like, like 75% of the time he's like, this fucking guy. And then the other 25% is like... It's like being back with my best friend a little again. bit yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and it, it sometimes turns on a switch yeah, yeah yeah and harry is so energetic like the bit where he's playing the record and he's like we were in dublin recording this oh real, yeah real that... fucking pissing down never-ending irish rain windmill lane getting a shout out i did not expect yeah, yeah. this
1: movie um <laughs> yeah and like it's the same thing where like and even though the movie starts i'm a bit like well, ray ray finds characters a lot but um mm. you do sort of end up kind of liking them. yeah <laughs> it's weird. yeah um even though he you know very flawed person mm. um yeah and i think you also see like in the swinton character like she wants to go and have weird adventures with harry but is also maybe feeling a little bit like she needs to care and look out for paul as he recovers and paul's also helping marianne recover too from resurgency so at least prior to harry's arrival the relationship relationship seemed kind of in a good place yeah i think yeah. you know and um i just thought yeah i also think just uh swinton's great character player play a rock star or, because like rockstar she has this otherworldly quality about her you know and um like i think i think she's meant to be sort of a chrissy hyde or like patty smith type yeah, figure yeah. and um i think Juan Nino was smart to include brief flashbacks of her in her heyday as a musician where we see her getting ready to play a stadium gig and in the studio giving notes to producers and also engaging in that more decadent rockstar behavior you know like snorting lines of coke backstage mm-hmm. with harry and um, I suppose I'd be a bit frustrated if I heard Tillisant was playing a rocker and we didn't get to see her play out engaging in those sort of Elizabeth Moss and her smell (laughs) kind of rock star antics and uh,
2: so she gets time to do that and and sing a bit as well and she has like a lovely voice I think you know so um, there's nothing she can't do I will say just going back to the thriller bit I think had the movie been more of a thriller from like the middle point onwards I think it would have done better service to Dakota Johnson's character because I think it's a good performance but there's not a whole lot there i agree a very hard character to sort of parse
1: what they want i'd say yeah yeah yeah. and i i I think she she holds her own because obviously she i think she's great but um Mm. obviously when the movie's made she's the less famous of the four yeah um, i think she holds her own and obviously guadagnino liked her so much he He put her in the lead role um what do you think of the fact that guadagnino screened a new cut of a bigger splash called an even bigger splash at a Swedish film festival that added 70 minutes to its running time bringing it to 195 minutes in length and he plans
2: to release it to the masses I'm excited yeah maybe it's more of a thriller <laughs> what, yeah
1: why would I, maybe it's both what do you think would be added because I, I, I've had a few I could
2: see bits where the movie's a little clipped you know yeah Um. just more I guess more stuff with them hanging out maybe yeah. there's a whole other character in there we don't see I know for a fact that um Francesca is it Francesca Scorsese
1: Scorsese's mm. daughter? She got cut out of bones and all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think he he shoots a lot of film and then finds it in the edit. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, I think more of Marianne and Paul's life before Harry's arrival. Mm, yeah, would be interesting to see. Um, I feel like their relationship is maybe a little bit underdeveloped. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the current cut. There's a few things that are suggested but not explicitly shown um, that I think could be fleshed out in extended. Co- and maybe more scenes relating to the subplot involving uh, migrants trying to enter Italy through the town Marion and Paul yeah, are staying, yeah. which can, runs through the movie and becomes a bit of a plot
2: point. Yeah. yeah. There um, is a bit at the end that kind of leads into the end, I guess, where uh, that has Matthias Schoenerts and Dakota Johnson on their own adventure. Yes. And I'm hoping that they don't add anything there if
1: you can I yeah. 100% agree I'd be worried about the cut that that mm. would be shown explicitly. yeah because yeah. Yeah. that's it's, that's a, a really good thing to just to hang in the middle of the movie over yeah, everything. yeah. yeah. Um, we move on to another Guanino, Suspiria sure yeah
2: Susie Banyan played by Dakota Johnson arrives in West Berlin in 1977 to audition for the Marcos Dance Academy after auditioning successfully she is taken under the wing of the Academy's artistic director Madame Blanc played by Tilda Swinton, unaware that the Academy is actually a coven of witches bent on sacrificing her to their corrupt leader, Mother Helena Helena Marcos, also Swinton. Meanwhile, psychiatrist Dr. Joseph Klemperer, Tilda Swinton again, is investigating the disappearance of patient and fellow dancer Patricia, played by Chloe Grace Moretz, which leads him to the Academy and its coven of sinister matrons.
0: When you dance the dance of another, you make yourself in the image of its creator. You empty yourself so that her work can live within you. Do you understand? Yeah. You're in a company now. You have to find your right place. You have to decide. What is it you want to be for this company? Is it the head? The spine? The sex? The heart? The hands. I want to be this company's hands.
2: Rare triple role, um, and considering most other triple roles or more, quadruple roles, quintuple roles, whatever, are in the either in the Medea films or bottom tier Eddie Murphy shite, it's doubly impressive here. Madame Blanc is, ma- like we'll take them in order. Madame Blanc, yeah. <laughs> Mother Marcos, and Joseph Clemper. Uh, so Madame Blanc is a woman initially bent on intent on seizing the leadership of the academy for herself. She believes Mother Marcos's physical decay Is related to the inner corruption Caused by her sacrificing innocent young women To keep herself alive And if you see Mother Marcos Towards the end of the film You'll believe me This is a really hard film to, Hard film for me to sell And recommend um, If you want another reading of it You can listen to our Mia Goth episode yeah. I'm not going to try and sell it here Because if you want to watch it You'll already want to watch it If you don't want to watch it Nothing I say can convince you <laughs> sure. um,
1: yeah.
2: uh, And I will say that Blanc's intentions Aren't pure either Um, She wants control of the coven and the academy, but also control of Susie too. Um, She values Susie and delights in seeing kind of her change and become more confident in herself, her body and her sexuality. But it's clear she wants Susie all to herself, whether in a maternal or more romantic manner, is kind of left up to the viewer to decide. But also, like, this has a lot to do with um, kind of motherhood and like bad mothers, good mothers, okay mothers. um, And then it intertwines that with like the national kind of guilt. An identity crisis Germany was going through during the seventies, um, so Blank has been with the academy so long through its darkest days, World War Two and beyond, that it's uncertain whether she'd be a good leader if power were turned over to her, or just as bad as Marcos was, but in a different way. And it can, t- uh, it can take a couple of watches for all this to get across. As although she's a firm but fair teacher in public, with a genuine affection for the girls she teaches, in private she's quite aloof and almost cold. I think. Um, like you can see something warm trying to get through but it never really does um, until the very end where it's too late Um, Madame Blanc clearly wants to be more open with Susie but the Academy's history of secrecy, sacrifice and seduction has left her prone to being kind of more stern and distant and that struggle of yearning to be close to someone but closing yourself off to them due to institutional pressure and the threat that comes with it is what makes it one of the more naughty LGBTQ plus films of recent years I think and all of that is pretty difficult to pull off in a single role but Swinton does it and then pulls off two other very different but no less complex performances uh, but that's, with all that said about um, Madame Blanc Helena, Mar- Helena Marcos is the true villain of the piece um, th- and though she's rarely seen her reveal is pretty repulsive as Guadagnino clearly studied at the, David- at the David Lynch school of villains is as in if it's ugly on the inside it should be ugly on the outside and Marcus is a big ba- big diseased bag of puss inside and out um, and it's not necessarily a hard performance in Swinton's kind of creation of the character but in the massive amount of makeup and prosthetics used to make her completely unrecognisable so she, when we first when we finally see her she's like this naked ball of flesh basically she's like warts and boils and tumours and everything this little baby's hand kind of flapping around on her forearm so yeah it's a hard performance in the massive amount of makeup and prosthetics used to make her look completely unrecognisable Speaking of, um, ditto the prosthetics he, uh, here on uh, Dr. Joseph Klemperer. The uh, heart of the movie, I think. The heart of the movie, absolutely, yeah. Um, a difficult a difficult character to play. It's not only a Swinton playing a fake actor, uh, Dr. Lutz Ebersdorf, <laughs> I believe he's called, uh, playing a role. She is also speaking Germans and sinking herself into the Ger- German national identity of the time. Uh, this is when Germany was going through a real... Almost a revolution, really, as this six-month-long period where um, left-wing radicalists, revolutionaries, freedom fighters are terrorists, depending on the Bader Meinhof faction, uh, the Red Army faction, even on the Bader Meinhof complex. One of the first three-hour movies I ever saw. <laughs> yeah. Um, I um, um. Klemperer is old in *Suspiria*, closer to eighty than seventy, meaning he was around middle age before and during World War Two. And though never stated, it's clear from his wife Anka's. Played by Jessica Harper, who played the original Susie Banyan in Dario Argento's 1977 yep. version. Arguably one of the prettiest women ever. Yeah, um, She's in Bones and all, too. Is she? Yep. Wonderful. Can't wait to see it. Um, so it's clear from his wife Anka's disappearance that the Klemperers were no, no friends of the Nazis, and that though he did nothing to stop the Nazis, the full weight of the historical shame and guilt should lie with those who abuse their power, not that those that could do nothing. Um... And as I said... I'm not going to try and sell this to people... Uh, It's a film with heavy themes... And a long runtime, Full of violence... And death... And sadness... But it is a really rich feast... That I return to time and again... Because it's one of the only... Horror films that makes me cry... That's guaranteed to make me cry... Um, Just the line... Two women were with her when she died... Opens the floodgates... Instantly... Um, Yeah... And it's a really rich feast... That I return to time and again... Because if you're willing to give it... The time and attention it deserves you'll take pieces of it with you and you'll leave a piece of yourself with it that you'll keep wanting to return to. I think.
1: Yeah. By far the most interesting horror remake of any movie ever. Ever. <laughs> yeah. Like there's yeah. ones that I arguably are better, but, um, I think in some ways the, his take on Suspiria improves the original, mm. but then also in other ways it doesn't, which is, but that's what you want. You don't want it to Absolutely, be just a yeah, copy. Yeah. You know?
2: yeah. Um,
1: yeah, and Bones and All rips, too. So he's... In terms of his movies... I watch his TV show or his documentaries, but in terms of, like, fictional movies, mm. four for four.
2: I mean, four I'm four. sure...
1: I've heard I Am Love is Great and all his other early movies, so... Cool. Um, will we talk about Memoria? Yeah, sure.
2: Jessica, played by Swinton, is a Scottish woman living in Colombia. Woken one night by a dull boom, the sound follows Jessica as she goes about her daily life. As she seems to be the only one who can hear it, she consults sound engineer Hernan, played by Juan Pablo Urego, her family and an older fisherman, also named Hernan, played Elkin Diaz, as to the meaning of the sound and perhaps life itself. Yeah, what do you think of this? I enjoyed it. Okay. Uh it's. Did you? Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no. <it's, laughs> uh, um. I think um. Uh, one, of my friend said something um that I'm gonna look up on my phone here. Bear with me. Listeners, don't worry. We'll cut this out. You won't. You'll never have to hear it leave it in and double it (laughs) yeah because this is about slow cinema yeah yeah yeah, one of my one of my friends I was talking to about the film uh, he says it's one of his favourite movies of the year Uh, hello Ian if you're listening Uh, he said how is slow cinema so rare yet most films feel too long seems like a paradox that's a great statement yeah yeah. I think slow cinema doesn't need to be long you know as in David Lowry's ghost story where Rooney Mara eats an entire entire pie in one long and broken shot all to herself yeah great movie um, but sometimes the the length helps. As case in point, Chantal Ackerman's Jean Dielman twenty three, Quai du Commerce, ten eighty, Brussels, Brussels, hitting number one on Sight and sense Once a Decade, best hundred films poll as of the week just gone. Have you, have you seen that? No, yeah, <laughs> I only I, heard of it when it, the, the poll was released. I
1: feel like I'd heard about Chantal Ackerman, but I don't. Mm, I wasn't yeah, sure if I'd yeah. heard about
2: that movie. And um, yeah, got something on my watch list. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. When I have the three and a half hours to do so. Yeah. 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 Okay. Christmas here we come. <laughs> um yeah, I'll, I'll talk about why I liked it. You can offer your rebuttal, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's... Yeah, a, yeah okay, we'll do that.
2: Um, so, many of Pong, we I really want to get this right. Many of Apichatpong cools films... Apologies for the st- stilted pronunciation. It's I'm not used to pronouncing Thai names. Yeah. Um, uh, our dreamlike spaces, like... Featuring kind of behavior and situations just left a reality center. I really like... Uh, I've only seen Uncle Boone, me, who could recall his past lives. It's a film I really like. Uh, I haven't returned to it since I saw it in college, but I have great memories of it. Um, and I think the questions of what, where, when, and why don't really matter to him. It's more the questions of how and who. And I don't know. I just really like... like I like the decision to shoot Columbia. Probably because he's familiar with uh, the lighting and atmosphere of a tropical country... Uh, there's no like yellow filters, or Creedence Clearwater Revivals run through the jungle, <laughs> um, playing as he sp- as people drive through the jungle. It just looks natural. Yeah. Um, the, the decision to use mostly kind of wide framing creates the sen- sensation of like being the observers, like this strange dream. And I think rarely does the end of, does cinema set the audience apart from the action while kind of maintaining a sense of intimacy between characters and audience. Uh, I think other cinema, other films have a sense, sense of intimacy that the directors like create with close ups or music and editing. Um, I think it's so it's clear that a great deal of effort was put into *Memoria* to make this closeness seem effortless. Um, I think a lot of this is down to Swinton, both in her, in her performance as Jessica and in the patience that slow cinema kind of requires of its casts and crews. Uh, I think a lot of filming filmmaking is about patience. Double that for acting, and then double it again for acting in slow cinema and it shows that as she's gotten older Swinton has only become more daring in her roles Uh, and I won't necessarily necessarily say that she wouldn't have done this while she was doing while she was younger and doing the experimental work with Derek Jarman but I don't think she would have had the confidence to do this as well as she does here than in her earlier career and yeah I don't know occasionally I'll watch I'll very rarely watch a movie that's slow but um, when I do find the time to watch one it's kind of like sinking myself into a warm bath mm. yeah
1: yeah um I, I was really excited to watch it because it's gotten great reviews and it's still the starring vehicle and it has a really unique sounding premise i'd never seen a um movie of the director before but uh, i've heard people call him like one of the you know modern world cinema greats you mm. know on account of, kind of movies like Ukubumi, yeah. who can recall his past lives um yeah just yeah you've said it. it's a it's a, this is a real house movie it's it's very much so got yeah. this incredibly yeah. slow and deliberate pace a story that's very enigmatic and unclear and maybe symbolic so if you're a type of person seeking out um movies as pure entertainment might give this a miss you know um i don't think that's the case with me necessarily um i've been known to i've been down to clown with that has moving in the mm-hmm. past we've talked about many on the show yeah um i found that this had a, a few quite striking moments and scenes in isolation like the scene of swinton trying to uh, describe the worst weir- weird sound she's been hearing to a sound engineer um the conversations with this mysterious figure um also called Hernan, that she meets in the countryside mm. later in the movie um that's it i think the movie's murmurings um about curses and viruses and the history of Columbia and the clash of the old and the new never really coalesced into something gripping or emotionally affecting for me mm. at least and um I don't think i need to see have movies you know make logical sense as long as they kind of keep my attention or provoke strong feelings in me as i watch them like i think that's what you know david lynch or the few like Maya darren shorts have seen do so well but um maybe it's a thing about just not seeing it in the cinema because i watch this at home on the you know I, feel, I felt like
2: i lost something as well yeah, yeah. me too
1: um because i've read reviews from critics who saw it in cinema and said that it do, does tap into something primal you know and like a feeling of displacement is the mm. thing that people yeah. seem to have kind of identified as the theme you know like you yep, have the scottish woman in columbia she's displaced her life for um from those she's closest with because they can't understand the sound she's being played with but also the movie might be saying like that's not the worst thing you know like mm. unshackling yourself from your daily routine and connecting with this greater world around you and through art or nature um i'd be lying if i said i parsed that from watching the movie mm. um and not from just critics and friends his takes on the movie afterward so i yeah something might have been lost in translation um it's just i think this movie's just not my tempo like uh so much of it consists of scenes with the cameras in a fixed position um throughout them or for long stretches of you know the scene yeah and i that's a style i think of as being traditionally deployed to ke- convey a sense of naturalism like when you know michael does it a lot you know yeah. I, lo- I love michael Hanukkah movies um the scenes play out as they would in real life you have the same sense of time passing as would in reality there's no artificial cutting but um i thought that it was a strange choice to do that in memoria because i don't think the characters ever act in a very natural way
2: yeah as, i think so too um because, i think that's more one of its more one of its strengths though maybe
1: that is the displacement thing mm-hmm. you know um but um i think just throughout the movie uh, the swinton's character jessica is confronted with a lot of very weird occurrences like as the movie gets strangers goes and I, she tends to react to them in this very reserved manner that i i can't really imagine anybody actually acting like where they be confront where they to be confronted with these uh scenarios in real life mm-hmm. and could be the point of the movie but um and like i I, I just something about it didn't reconnect for me and i i think swinton is no doubt doing the task that was asked of her and is very impressive delivering dialogue in spanish which she seems to just have like an an ear for languages she always acts in other in non-english stuff Mm. but um and she's also acting out these scenes that go on for a long long time without cutting. this movie's 136 minutes long on account of these lengthy scenes um but I, i think i just found it hard to invest in the movie because of her character and what the movie's saying out to do are so enigmatic even yeah. in a surrealist sense
2: yeah you know when you have uh, you know when you have a dream and I don't mean like a, a standout dream not like a nightmare or something that's like maybe more emotionally impactful like you see a dead relative or whatever Um, just your common or garden average dream I think that's what this movie evokes for me mm. which is kind of like it's not boring it's interesting to you but only to you really Um, and that's kind of like everything is like ordinary life but just a bit left of center like you're having a a weird conversation but in the dream world you're like oh this is normal
1: I think there's a lot of parts of the movie that almost feel like a short movie in themselves like Mm. the bit where um, there's a like you know the way cars can sometimes go bang S- the car does that and then someone in the really background of the shot jumps down on the ground yeah, <laughs> as yeah. if like someone's trying to take a shot at him yeah and then he has to kind of act casually all that stuff is pretty good I just I all of it together didn't I didn't kind of get it I, feel. I don't know yeah. but maybe yeah. Yeah. Um, will we move on to 3000 um, Years of Longing go for it yes this movie centers around the character of Alethea who's played by Swinton a British nar- narratologist uh, somebody who studies stories and <laughs> While in Istanbul to give a lecture on stories that recur throughout human civilization, she purchases an antique bottle, take it back to her hotel room. She pries it open only for a djinn, you know, a genie to pop out, played by Idris Elba. And he comes out and he says, um, I am beholden to you for this release. I must grant you three wishes. I really like that he immediately gets out of the way, you know, like, there are laws which cannot be broken. Three is three, a number of power. You may not wish for endless wishes, nor may you wish for eternal life. It is your nature to be mortal, mine to be immortal. Nor can I absolve sin or end all suffering um Fair aside from that you do you yeah you know um Alethea basically says to the gym, she doesn't need any wishes uh, she tells him i dare say i'm content and gratefully so um she was married it didn't work out but um she says instead of feeling hurt or betrayal and it's implied that her husband left her for another woman she says the divorce is freeing i, I was like a prisoner emerging from a dungeon into the sunlight i expanded into the space of my own life um she has a great career too that allows her to travel and also being a narratologist she's worried that the gin may be a trickster and she rightfully points out that all stories about wishes are cautionary tales. So to try and put her at ease and to get to know her better, um, the jinn tells her three stories of how he previously became trapped in bottles, the events of which we see in flashback. And each of his previous masters were women that the jinn formed these very intense um, relationships with. The first was the Queen of Sheba. Huh? The second was Gutan, a young concubine in the palace of Solomon the Magnificent. And the third was Zephir, uh, the young wife of a Turkish merchant in the 19th century who yearned for knowledge.
0: You mock me. Three wishes. Perfectly simple and theoretically safe. I was imprisoned by Solomon precisely because I cried out my heart's desire. Only by granting you yours may I earn my release. Yes, well, I appreciate the symmetry, but the thing is this. I cannot for the life of me summon up one eligible wish. And you're asking me for three. Is there any life in you? Are you even alive? You know, in some cultures, absence of desire means enlightenment. Then you are a pious fool. If I'm content, why tempt fate? And you're a coward. Don't goad me. There is no human, no angel, no jinn that wouldn't grasp at the chance to fulfill their deepest longings, and I am saddled with the one who claims to want nothing at all. Alethea Beni, you are a liar. You know I am beginning to wish we'd never met. No, no Don't say that.
1: This is the latest from uh, George Miller, who created the Mad Max franchise. It came at out that Happy Feet, Happy Feet <laughs> and uh, The Witches of Eastwick, yeah, uh, what Pig. else? Or b- b- Babe, Pig. Babe, yes. yeah. Um, it came out this year. I'd say to mixed to positive reviews from critics. It also made a fair bit less at the box office than would it was so, yeah. than it cost to make. Um, I believe it's by far the most underrated movie of 2022. I adore it. I think it's a masterpiece, and I, I really do think it'll be go on to be considered as such in the years going forward. Mm. Um, it's got everything, man it's beautiful and romantic and life affirming and sexy it's epic but intimate it's ambitious as hell i've never seen a movie structured like this before where for a huge chunk of its runtime it's just two of the world's finest actors in a hotel room musing on life their past the nature of storytelling just throwing out fuego chemistry and delivering as i, tr- I tried to emphasize in my lengthy rundown of the plot just incredibly rich dialogue um written by miller and his daughter Augusta Gore. um but you also have this almost bottle setting juxtaposed with some of the most colorful vibrant inventively staged and as i said like epic sequences uh portraying the jinn's life over 3,000 years as he intersects with real life historical events that um i for one as not a huge history buff was not aware of but are fascinating you know and it would be enough to recommend it just on that but um i also think it's this very interesting treatise on the nature of storytelling like the alathea character narrates the movie as if it was a fairy tale she studies stories the djinn and her connect through training stories murad the fourth as we all know the sultan of the ottoman empire from 1623 to 1640 he's portrayed in the film as having gone to war and returning completely blood simple uh, and but what's the only method he finds that can calm his bloodlust hiring a professional storyteller to entertain him ah. <laughs> um and you know early on in the movie we see the swinton character give this lecture about stories of old gods and how they were people in the past way of rationalizing things like thunder or tsunamis or seasons when they didn't have the scientific knowledge to understand why those events were happening and um she points out like now that we have that scientific knowledge what do we require of stories now do they still have a purpose and i think the movie comes to this conclusion that there are plenty of reasons to still tell stories and i i think um you know what we may not need stories nowadays to serve as an explanation for thunder and lightning they're a way for people to process and express what's happening internally for them you know complex feelings like love loneliness or longing and it's only through the telling of these stories you know that we understand other people's perspectives and no we're not alone like stories bind people together and um Sweden's wonderfulness i feel like elba has the showier role because he's the character that kicks the movie into the into gear you know you want to see the djinn he's got all these incredible powers which are amazingly rendered by miller he's also such a tragically aching romantic and alluring figure who you just can't help but fall in love with as you're watching but Swinton's just as excellent in a role which I think is more complicated than it first appears Um, because on one level like Alethea is the Academic, rational character who spends the early part of the movie casting doubt on the genie's intentions and stories, but she never for a second feels like a wet blanket, you mm. know. And if anything, I find her as endearing and as fascinating as the gin. And it's that's partly down to great writing. Like the character's a lot of depths and layers and through, you know, these very artfully shot and well placed throughout the movie flashbacks. We learn a lot about her life pre meeting the djinn which I think helped to explain some of her decisions in the movie. I'll talk more about in bit, that in a sec, but um i just think the casting of swinton who again has this other qua- otherworldly quality and has played angels and mystical figures and a whole host of other movies means that the character is never going to be just boring yeah and um i think uh, blank check the podcast pointed out that this is one of those rare movies where you could swap the lead roles you know having swinton as yeah, the mystical yeah. wish giver and elbows the academic, <laughs> and it would probably work just as well you know and um
2: tilda swinton should have played the lion and beast
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> she could do
1: it yeah. yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't ride her yeah, out you no. know um but I, I think the warmth of swinton's narration too and her openness on screen um i think that makes the character of althea compelling and easy to sympathize with and like and what's immediately very striking when watching three thousand years of longing is how rarely you see an independent middle-aged woman who is content with not having a boyfriend husband or child at the center of what's essentially a blockbuster like this costs mm. 60 million to make um it's matt miller cashing a Mad max fury road blank check right yeah um that's it you know I'll go uh, me Steam Portio. um, when I'm out with people and they want to start a conversation with me um, it's usually movie related because they know I'll get really engaged and recently when someone asked me like, oh, have you seen anything good lately I'll be I'll, I've will i been plugging 3000 years of longing and while most people reply with I don't know what that is <laughs> or you know oh yeah I heard about that Batman a few have said to me they take issue and I'm trying to avoid spoilers here they take issue with the pivot the movie makes about two thirds of the way in which is based on a decision made by Alaphia and it seems like people think the choice Althea makes is a bit left field and maybe undercuts what's unique about the character that she is completely content in herself and her life and I know the Decision never bothered me the first time I watched it and watching it again in preparation for this I, I think I understood why it rang true um, Althea opens the movie saying like my story is true you're more likely to believe me however if I tell it as a fairy tale and she narrates the movie so what viewers witness on screen is most likely like a simplified version of the so-called true events mm. that the character experienced that said Miller and Swinton sprinkle throughout the movie details and moments that conflict with Alethea's fairy tale like narration giving a glimpse of things Alethea is glossing over or ignoring in her retelling early on the character says her and her husband just fell out of love but in a flashback we see a glimpse of a positive pregnancy test and an ultrasound and we know in present in the present she doesn't have kids mm. so the child is implied to have died before it was born um, a tragic event that probably impacted the marriage but it's like Alethea even though she's narrating the rain, the story can't confront that like it's too painful yeah um similarly in her fairy tale narration Alathea describes herself as adequately happy and alone alone by choice and she says I'm happy because I'm independent but and I think while the character is fundamentally that way and does feel like that um, I also feel it's more complicated than that and there's this beautiful moment with um, Swinton's character that comes about halfway through the movie which um, I think helps explain that third act pivot and it may be missed by people because their attention was on the Elba character in the moment Mm, Um, the djinn is just after recounting how he was cursed to be invisible for a hundred years because his last master died um, before she requested her final wish and he says there I was left to my own oblivion with no one to hear my voice no one to know me no one to know me or feel me nor sense me you can't imagine and Sutton says as the self-assuredness and confidence that she had throughout the movie fades for a moment well actually I can and Elba says "Um, can you imagine the loneliness how it might overwhelm and she says I can and he says, "We only exist if we are real to others." Do you agree? And she says, "I do." But then immediately she catches herself being vulnerable and changes gear to like, "No, trickster Gin! Like that's a real problem." <laughs> um however just I think from that little scene with Swinton, I, I get the sense that that while she might not want to be tied to another person forever, the way she was with her ex-husband, and she's overall happy with her life, you know, that being alone by choice can still get lonely. Mm. You know, you can be strong and independent, and also feel lonely at times. They don't counteract one another. And I think that loneliness is why in a moment of rashness that she makes this choice that has been controversial for some people who've seen the movie and um, also the movie's presented as a fairy tale so I think big plot jumps are par- in parcel with that and also with spawn again and people should see this including you Andrew I <laughs> implore you to watch it before Best of the Year <laughs> episode um, I think the movie deals with the repercussions of Alethea's decision in a very canny way um, so five out of five we'll watch again
2: okay I'll make an effort to, to get it yeah. to get to it yeah
1: um, you should I think you'd really like it I think you it's right up your on your tempo on your alley up your alley it's yeah. up my tempo it's, it's up your tempo <laughs> yeah whatever I don't know. we've been recording for a long time fair, um, yeah. upcoming roles for Swinton um, Pinocchio will be out by the time this episode yep. comes out on Netflix um, The Eternal Daughter is out in the States I haven't got a, an Irish release date yet yeah I really
2: did want to cover it for this but yeah. uh,
1: what can you do didn't um, happen, Yeah, Asteroid City The Killer um an untitled comedy directed by julio torres Ooh. who is the guy who wrote the snl sketches the papyrus sketch and the wells oh, wells nice. for boys sketch have you ever seen that Stone <laughs> so good um so i'm excited for that um i feel a little bit bad we didn't cover we need to talk about kevin
2: yeah i guess so they're just more interesting roles she has i i, I think that movie i think is, that role is interesting but they're more just, that movie's
1: so fucking depressing that's the thing I think that movie's a masterpiece but I, I just her. I think her performance and the movie itself is so devastating that yeah. I couldn't bring myself to watch again but if you, but people haven't seen that they should
2: seek that out yeah. it's really really good I came downstairs once to my housemates watching We Need to Talk About Kevin they were about three quarters of the way through or whatever and I was like oh what is this and they were like We Need to Talk About Kevin and I was like oh Jesus <laughs> yeah yeah I sat down and watched the rest of it because it's a masterpiece but god it wasn't the same afterwards. Yeah, it's a it's a it's certainly a tough but important watch, I'd say. Very much so. Rate and
1: review view and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. If you have a friend who's really into the sh- movies, why not recommend them our show? Email I know the if you'd like to reach out to us. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you love I Know the Face, please consider donning five year us through Headster Plus, where you can find special exclusive bonus episodes. We have multiple available now, including a few in our leading legend series focusing on A listers like Brad Pitt Denzel
2: Washington, Jody Foster, Kristen Stewart. And, and that's it we'll record more in the new year though that's i w- I was gonna suggest you wanna do on the on that feed a
1: one about movies we're excited for in 2023 oh fine <laughs> okay I was getting, if I say it on mic you have to do it yeah that's right. true um
2: we can just record at the end of it would be 10 minutes alright fine yeah, yeah okay. um yeah. Fine, Andrew. Where can people you find your work? You can find me at the HeadStuff Gaming section, where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it, and also at fortnightfrights.wordpress.com You can follow me on Letterbox, either Stephen Ports or Ports
1: You can also check me out at Joe I just recently wrote some longer articles there about the movie Solaris and Atonement because um, they just did anniversaries. Um, see you there, to some those. Bye bye.